You're listening to The Turing Podcast, a production of the Alan Turing Institute, the UK's National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Turing Podcast. My name's Ed Castry, and I'm here with my co-host, B. Costa-Gomez. We are still in lockdown, still in the pandemic, um, and today uh, we're joined for a second time by Alan Turing Institute Fellow, Dr. Peter Tennant of the Leeds Institute for Data Analytics for a discussion about the scientific community's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Peter is an expert not only in data science, but also in epidemiology, which in my view makes him one of the people we need to be listening to most carefully at this time. Peter, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me back, Ed. (laughs) Hello, B. Um, Hello. Yes, epidemiologists are the rock stars of the moment, apparently. Um, <laughs> Absolutely, I, yeah. I, 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 I'm, TV superstars. Yes, <laughs> I, I'm. Uh, I don't know what that means for me, and whether I, I, I haven't seen any any change in anyone's behaviour. I haven't. Uh, no one's asked for my autograph. I, suppose it's I was about to ask that if you how many if your hand hurts from all of the autograph signing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose what's it like being a rock star during a lockdown? Um, I mean, maybe <laughs> yeah, exactly. maybe this you're is doing concerts online. <laughs> maybe this is the same. I mean, you're just at home. Maybe you're just a rock star. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm sorry. I will. I will. I will stop the puns. Let's continue. <laughs> Right. Um, firstly, Peter, you've recently been a speaker at the COGEX Festival of AI and Emerging Technologies, yep. which this year was online, of course. Um, what can you tell us about your experience at the festival? Were there any talks in particular that excited and impressed you? And, and what were you talking about there? Well, unsurprisingly, I was talking about causal inference. Um, <laughs> that was um, the session that I would say... Um, I was most excited by, obviously, um, but um, my favourite talk, I think, was the one that I arranged as part of that session, actually, with um, Ellie Murray, Dr. Um, Murray from Boston University, um, and she was talking about um, the need, essentially, for causal inference um, in COVID-19 research, um, in particular, um, how bringing a causal perspective um, and a, a, a taking a, what, what we might call a target trial approach um, is quite useful or indeed possibly even essential um, for much of the sort of research that um, we need to be doing looking at COVID-19. Um, and then we also had um, another, another couple of talks, one from myself, which was not particularly interesting, obviously, and then um, one from um, I'm sure uh, it was <laughs> well, one, one from uh, Virginia Anlietti uh, from the University of Warwick. Um, also, again, talking about uh, uh, why causal inference is, is um, how, how it can be really important to answer certain applied questions. Um, but the session was really well attended, um, and we got inundated with questions afterwards. It was it was really quite fun actually. We got. Um, <laughs> One of the questions was, does this mean we just shouldn't pay attention to any studies published in the news? Um, which um, I think Ellie gave a nice <laughs> diplomatic answer. And then I gave, yes, it means you should ignore everything. So probably somewhere in the middle is a happy medium. <laughs> well, it was a good, that's a sign that it was a good session if you had a lot of questions afterwards. 
Yeah, we did. And we had a good sort of discussion. Um, I I have to say, um, I wasn't able to attend much more of COGX myself, um, but I saw at least uh, there was one other session um, on causal inference. So um, from my point of view, this was something that had been missing in previous um, COGX uh, uh, meetings. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was really nice to see that sort of starting to um, appear and, and and I've had quite a few people contact me afterwards and say they'd like to hear about it and I have to say well I'm only one person um, it's great that there's this interest but you know we need to start um, uh, sharing around the the sort of um, the opportunities to, to to talk about this and to to to, to jump on board and, and learn about it what what's the reason you think why um People are paying in the people in the AI community, perhaps people who attend festivals like COGX or conferences uh, might be paying more interest to causal inference research now relative to previously. Uh, that's a really that's a tough one to answer um, because um, I sort of don't know the community outside my own world. It's been something I've been telling people to pay attention to for many years. So um, the fact that suddenly people are paying more attention is, is a, I, I, I can't mm-hmm. put my finger exactly on why. Um, I would, would say that, that um, the, the Book of Why, which I mentioned in the last podcast by Judea Pearl, um, a lot of people have, 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 have tried to read it. Uh, there is at least a buzz around it. Um, we, know the, uh, we know that Dominic Cummings very, very um, uh, salient uh, individual in, in the COVID-19 discussions. But we know that he, when, um, when he was putting out a call for essentially his team um, in, in Whitehall, asked for people who could understand the Book of Why. Um, oh, really interesting. Yeah, and um, I, I've had um, uh, certainly the defense and security team at the Turing are very interested in cause and inference. Um, it seems to have just hit the, the consciousness, um, I guess, in the way these things normally do, in that they're invisible, 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 and then suddenly they're not invisible. And then everyone wants to know about it. It certainly makes sense from my perspective. I think understanding risk factors and understanding causes of things is something that's becoming ever more important as we're entering the world of, you know, a deluge of data. And, and, the, and the pandemic has really highlighted that now, you know, the media is just, you know, there's graphs all over the place. <laughs> yep. um, rather than good graphs equations. or not. And, and completely meaningless equations, yes. Um, and risk factors everywhere. And uh, I mean, this is this is where it gets interesting. I think there is definitely an interaction um, between the pressure and the urgency and the importance of health research um, and epidemiological research, which COVID nineteen has has triggered, and the, the the sort of excitement and the energy that's going in to try and um, address that problem, and then a recognition of uh, the tools that we have and maybe also the tools that we need. And I think um, that may be another reason why there's this growing interest right now, um, because I think I again said last time that we're in 
this almost transitionary period, I describe epidemiology as being a subject that is absolutely undergoing a revolution and certainly, a, um, in the worst, you'd say an identity crisis, but at best, I would say it's, it's, it's almost, yeah, um, evolving into a completely new discipline. Is this a, a bit of a, a trial of fire, if, if that makes sense, for the epidemiology community? Oh, definitely. Right <laughs> oh, definitely. I mean, um, it, is an, it is a very exciting time to be an epidemiologist, but it's also a very terrifying time um, to be mm. an epidemiologist. There is an awful lot of attention um, on the epidemiology community, for better or worse. Uh, some of that, I would say, um, there is a, an edge to it. Um, which is politically driven um, because some of the messages and some of the advice that's coming out from epidemiological communities um, may not fit with everyone's political persuasions. So that's created a lot more um, public attention, for better or worse, and, and, even, and, and that's been highlighted even by incidents such as Professor Neil Ferguson uh, one of the UK's leading infectious disease epidemiologists, of course, then managing to get himself in, what can we describe it as, as a bit of a personal, yeah, yeah, a bit of a personal clash with the tabloids. I was, um, I, I spoke out um, online in defence of him, not for necessarily making any comment on his behaviours, but saying that we as scientists. And the validity of the science that we do is completely independent to our behavior. And it's a lovely idea yeah. that we all go around and behave as the perfect citizen. Um, but actually, if you look through the history of science, some of the best scientists are definitely not perfect citizens. But we would not discard the validity of the science. Um, and so I found it very uncomfortable to see this blurring between the personal life and the professional scientific advice. But on the other hand, uh, there's a positive side for that when you have um, some epidemiologists, I, I say br people who are braver than I, have stood up and really taken to trying to do outreach and public science communication and you know, talking about what's going on and sharing the best advice. Um, in, in, in ways that hopefully the public can follow and really um, take on board. Cool. Um, I, I've got a, a question about the politics of it all. I think I'll save that for a little bit later on. Um, <laughs> really? <laughs> I was just going to say, how vindicated do you guys feel currently? Because you say that how you've been telling people to pay attention and now they do. And so there must be a part of you there who's like, I told you so. Uh. <laughs> I would say that um, the epidemiology community in general is not feeling... Vindication is not really the emotion that's going through our, our thoughts. Uh, in fact, uh, most people who tend to get a sense of, I told you so, um, if you really care about something, then you don't, you, you don't get any pleasure from that. Um, actually, it's more, oh dear, I've never wanted to be wrong more in my life um, and I oh, think absolutely, yeah. um, this is where we, I can talk about some of my own research um, I suppose one of the things I'm uh, been trying to look at is the consequences of decisions around timing of lockdown and timing of introducing social distancing and 
in mid-March in the UK, of course, there were lots of discussions and debates quite furiously um, about when is the best time to initiate social distancing, what is the best course of action, um, and obviously different countries took different decisions. And um, the reality is likely to be, and we've again, we've seen epidemiologists like Neil Ferguson a few days ago say this probably costs tens of thousands of lives. Um, these are not things you want to be proven right on. Um, so, yes, we've indicated... This is specifically the... the I guess what he said was um, that the decision to not go into lockdown two weeks earlier than we actually did go into lockdown resulted in uh, twice as many deaths as they might otherwise have been. Is that is that what he said, I think? Yeah, he. Uh, we've had a couple of members, or at least former members of SAGE, uh, the, the government's kind of advisory uh, committee, coming out uh, recently. In fact, there was a there was a a Channel 4 dispatches program as well. The exact wording of each person is sort of, um, is, is not as important as the fact that this question is really being asked. And this is a question that I'm hoping to try and answer, um, is, is, is what, what was the, uh, the, the, the quantifiable consequence of these very hard decisions? Um, I would not want to be the person in government making these decisions. It's easier to be the scientist um, describing the numbers without having to make the actual decision. But um, the realities that playing out across the world of all these little micro decisions, do we open schools or not? Do we relax social distancing from two metres to one metres? This is a very challenging position for everyone to be put in. Um, and, the, you know, the, I mean, the irony is, talking about vindication, there are certain things where everyone is in agreement broadly. And then there are ones where there's actually a lot more um, uncertainty and confusion. Masks uh, being one where I think until relatively recently, there was a lot more of a debate about how useful these actually were. Um, and of course, now it's pretty much recommended that you, you we should all be wearing masks because that would greatly reduce the even if it doesn't reduce your risk that much as an individual, it would greatly reduce the spread of the disease in the population as a whole. Mm, yeah, there's a lot of things to consider. There's a lot of data to be crunched there. Um, what What is it exactly that you yourself and your research group are doing then and, and what kind of data are you specifically looking at and what question you are trying to answer? Well, I mean, there, there's a lot going on in, in COVID um, and uh, Le University of Leeds um, is part of the Alan Turing Institute's uh, sort of de-COVID um, programme, which is designed to uh, respond and answer questions that are being asked on the clinical front line. Now, this is not something I'm personally involved in, but it is something that my colleagues are involved in. And that very much is about saying... You know, um, how, how uh, what what are the specific risks? Let's say for people with diabetes, um, and how uh, or uh, which treatments appear to be not, not not necessarily treatments in a drug sense, but which ways of managing people seem to be more effective than others? Do we 
delay with with ventilators or are we best putting people on ventilators straight away when they're very severe? So there were those kind of absolutely urgent clinical questions, which come from the fact that it's a new disease that we really still don't know that much about. And a lot of what... I should say at this point that that's the project that I'm working on. And, DCOVID. Uh, <laughs> ah. Yes. It's, um, I'm not sure how much we can say about this yet. And certainly we will do a podcast episode later on uh, discussing what's going on there. I don't know if we'll have to edit this out, this part out, but hopefully not. Um, but yes, it's 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 been announced as a, a to the world that it's happening at least that the initiative exists. So I'll, I'll say that much at least. Um, <laughs> I mean, but, um, they have a website. Um, yes, they have a website, which, which broadly yeah. says the aim is to is to answer is for for data scientists and you know the Alan Turing Institute's expertise to be responding to urgent clinical questions. I mean, the exact, I agree that exactly which questions will be answered, um, by who, uh, what the timeframes are likely to be, what the data problems are likely to be, we don't know. But the, the, the good news is there is that um, there's a lot of um, willingness to do that work and, and to, to respond to those queries. I, because I'm not part of that, um, and in a sense, my own work is quite uh, methodological rather than applied. Um, it's not as obvious how I can down one set of tools in one place and, and, and pick up and, and start running with COVID research. Um, so during the early stages of the outbreak, most of, of, of my contribution to COVID was about um, trying to... Uh, help people to raise their profile um, and collectively make scientific points. So I was part of a number of, of uh, epidemiological and scientific groups that were just trying to advocate for evidence, um, whether, through that, that, whether that was through kind of newspaper um, letters or directly talking to government or, the, or, um, or civil service. Um, that was about making sure that the right people were kind of linked together. Um, but then I myself actually have been ill, not with COVID, but uh, directly, but just um, the consequences of um, massive societal change and life change. Um, that, that, was, that has been quite hard for me. Um, but what I've, as I say, been doing more recently is um, asking some of those um, questions about um, how can we bring um, a causal perspective into COVID-19 research. And so one of the obvious um, aspects there is to start to ask what would happen if types of questions or how could things have been different type of questions. So um, what was the impact of lockdown or social distancing measures? Um, how effectively did they act? How quickly? Uh, and um, uh, looking across Europe, for example, if we look at that variation, we can then start to see uh, the difference between, say, faster acting and slower acting countries, and maybe in theory, but this is further down the line, because different countries acted in different ways, um, which measures were more effective and which were less effective. That's an interesting... Go on. Uh, I was going to say, hopefully there's some lessons to learn because um, 
I, I guess everyone was sort of winging it this time around, but the idea is to learn from what went wrong and what went right. Uh, I think the most hopefully. I think the most important thing is that um, empirical work has huge value. And, and what that really means is watching what is happening and responding to that. So we aren't going to get things right all the time because, as you say, we are winging it. Um, and we're wing, you know, usually winging it to the best of our abilities, to the best of our knowledge. And then if things don't quite work out, then we really, really need to learn fast. And I think in particular with the threat of a second wave. And, and in addition, we're learning, for example, that COVID-19 uh, is not just a respiratory illness. Um, it, it's, it's an autoimmune illness, or it certainly has a huge inflammatory component. And that that seems to, in some people to last a quite long-term disease. There is going to be this ongoing learning process. Science is messy. Um, people expect simple, clean answers. Um, but actually, when it's done well, is when we're being honest about what we do and don't know, and then saying, okay, we, we didn't know that, that's fine. We, let, let, let's realise that we got that bit wrong and try and learn better next time. So that, so what I was thinking before was, it's interesting, most of the research on COVID-19 stuff I've seen so far has been things which are predictive so it's like mm. um can we predict what the risk factors are um or, or who's at most risk of, of dying or having the disease badly um or it's been yeah yeah it's been things of a predictive nature but now that some time has passed now we're getting into the point where causal causal inference research may be um also useful because you also want to ask the questions of not just what's going to happen, but what happened um, and, and what caused, what were the, uh, the, the causes of what happened? What were the decisions that led to good outcomes and decisions that led to bad outcomes? Yeah, it depends what your, your motive is. Um, and my pushback, and this is not to say that predictive research is not, does not have its place, but in general, my pushback is that um, usually we want to do more than just know um, that a wave is coming or that bad weather is coming. Um, you know, we want to do more than just forecasting. And, and in this case, it's very clear. We would want to know not just who is going to deteriorate, let's say, in, a, in an individual patient with COVID-19, but what is the best course of action we can then take to try and and prevent that deterioration uh, and um, and not just who are most likely to be affected but why and if we can find out why then maybe we can reduce their risk so there is this is where obviously data becomes absolutely critical that is the big challenge for COVID-19 research around the world is having sufficient quality data to answer questions well and um, there are huge problems if, if we get that wrong um, we've seen a really powerful example um, in um, some of the early research around, um, I think it was antihypertensive drugs like ACE inhibitors, um, where there was an apparent um, uh, protective effect. Um, but this 
was actually a very well-known, well, I say very well-known, I mean, clearly not well-known enough, um, but it was a, an artifact of the, 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 the information within that data. So it's a, a bias known as immortal time bias. A very interesting and... and, and um, Sounds cool. Yes, it's a cool sounding name. name. It's the bias I would want. If I was a bias, I would want to be the immortal time bias. Um, But it it happens quite a lot. Doctor Strange is time bias. Yes. I I was going to say that it's a good rock band name as well. It's a good, it is. It's definitely a good rock band name. If I was going to make my causal inference band, I'd be immortal time bias. Um, But some of these little biases um, that... that, um, specialists are more familiar with um, suddenly become a bigger problem when the whole scientific community rushes to help and then suddenly and, and observational research is a really good example of this there are huge challenges to doing observational data analysis and the type of data that you have um, and where it's come from so let's say hospital data is very different to a survey um, which is very different to a population register. You know, so hospital data only tells you about the people who end up in hospital. Survey you might design specifically to get a random sample, or it might, act, but it might still end up with uh, a, a, a sort of um, unusual selection of people participating versus, let's say, a register, which is where everybody, for example, is, is included. Um, and they all they all have their strengths and limitations, but but um, awareness of um, selection, ironically, is not necessarily the thing you would think as being one of the most powerful aspects of causal inference research. Um, but it is actually one of the main areas um, of advance that it's made because when you so you're talking about what data is selected to do research on in the first place it is yes it's 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 almost the entire process through which the data has appeared into being and and this is a a, some uh, the formal name is the data generating process and people who've been trained on experimental data do not really think about this because in an experiment, right. you generate the data to be, um, well, it's like the school experiment. You generate it so that it's controlled. But in the real world, it, it generates itself to a certain extent. Um, routine data is a very good example. Wild data. It is. It's, it's wild. It is wild west data. Big data is wild west data. And, and it comes, and the backstory of how that data has come into being is really, really important in then understanding the relationships that take place. So um, you, you, you can imagine a situation, if we only look in intensive care units data, um, then you can imagine that the types of people and the types of patients who you get to that very end stage, in the very simplest sense, are not going to be reflective of everyone who has COVID-19. Um, but it may... It may also be that we then see patterns within those um, those uh, settings that are actually quite radically different to what you see in a more wider sense. So this is, funnily enough, this is one of the biggest areas where COVID, uh, where causal inference 
um, uh, kind of theory has 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 made a difference to our understanding of how to analyze these wild west data sets. Um, where have they come from? What can they tell us? And what what are the sort of weird pitfalls within them? Uh, we're talking about scientists making observations, and you said how how you, people were aware of that in the field, but then people came from outside. And then if we think about the fact that now everyone is a pocket epidemiologist and you have important people tell you to inject bleach, um, it's not it's not a very good sign of the times that we're in, is it? No. I, I mean, this is where I, I sit in a controversial space when it comes to COVID-19 research, um, because... Actually, I would say that I've seen... Because I was enthusiastically backed Donald Trump's suggestion to... <laughs> yes, very Sorry, controversial. Not... <laughs> I believe that injecting... Bl- no, I won't even go there. But, but, but it's triggered this thought, which is that um, the best and the worst of science is on display right now. I suppose because a lot of health scientific research is now being redirected to this one area. Um, and therefore, you will expect to see the whole range of the best and the worst. But the the problem with, as you say, the armchair epidemiologists joining in is they might think, you know, I, I can do some, I can do some modelling, you know, let let me help out. Um, but it's it is actually a very technical uh, and specialist field, which, as I say, is going through a revolution. The amount of knowledge and understanding about things like um, data generating processes um, has really revolutionized in the last 20 years. So there's a lot of places where researchers who have not been trained perhaps uh, so rigidly can fall over and, 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 and can um, make mistakes. So um, the, the example of the immortal time bias um, and some of the early messages around ibuprofen um, is a good one. That that was, was a sort of uh, is a bias that, I mean, I'm not sure how many people, even epidemiologists worldwide, would would necessarily know that. But um, it is. What was the messaging around ibuprofen? Well, uh, you may remember mixed messages around basically don't take ibuprofen if you have COVID-19, and then suddenly do take anti-inflammatories if you have it, and and all of these, some of these are artifacts of just lots of people doing research with all kinds of different data. But some of them reflect um, specific biases. Um, another very um, clear one we were seeing early on um, was the BCG vaccine. Um, I don't know if any, you heard about this. Quite early in the pandemic, um, it was noticed ecologically, in other words, between countries, that those countries that had higher rates of BCG vaccine seemed to have lower um, rates of uh, COVID-19. And so there was a suggestion that maybe the BCG offers um, immunity against um, COVID-19. But it was a classic ecological fallacy, as an epidemiologist would call it, um, because when you make um, these kind of country-level comparisons, in a sense, there are so many diff- other differences between countries and the, the, the what's going on in those different settings that you cannot make those type of Inferences. So we had, we've had, I would say, a real mix. We've had a lot of really great scientists turning their energies 
um, to trying to do the best work that they can. Um, we've had a lot of people, um, I would say, um, with good intentions, also turning their energies, but perhaps not having as much training as would have been ideal. Um, and then, unfortunately, we've also had some more cynical um, efforts as well. Um, so this is always going to happen in any community um, when you have something like this, where, in a sense, it becomes uh, a bandwagon that, ev that, that, that everybody is joining. Um, but in the worst case, we've seen with uh, hydroxychloroquine, um, essentially, it would appear that this is the drug that, that Donald Trump claimed to be taking, but, but, but more to the point, this is an anti-malarial drug, very, very important for um, uh, treating malaria, um, which let, let's not forget until very recently, um, each month was causing far more deaths than COVID-19. Um, and the supplies of this drug are not, you know, not uh, uh, great. Um, but there was a suggest there was a, a data set supposedly made available where this drug appeared to be protective against COVID nineteen, um, and that that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet. Um, but then um, turned out that there were some very strange things going on in these data very strange data patterns that look almost too perfect um, to be real. And so people started asking, can we see the data? Um, and the answer was no. Um, and thankfully... The, oh, hold on um, a second. So you're saying that people published in a journal without access to the data? <laughs> well, this is where it gets remarkable, is that, that the scientists involved said, well, we just trusted that the analysis and the data was done correctly by um, the, 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 the commercial organization um, that claimed to do the analysis. Um, but it really raises, I mean, it raises a number of questions. Um, the, the papers have been retracted um, because in a sense, uh, without using, we can say there's enough evidence to say that without seeing the data, we're a bit nervous. <laughs> That's the most polite thing. People would say, I would say that um, it's probably fabricated, um, but that's probably, you know, that that's just oh, my... So, so this is still an ongoing, we're not sure what's yes, going on yet. Yes, so, you know, I'm just okay. saying that out of pure, um, you know, um, speculation. Um, one can't know one way or another, but the fact of the matter is, um, it's an example at, at the least of, of, of some heavy cynical bandwagon jumping. Um, because at best you would share your data. Um, and, and I think that the positive message that comes out of all of this, um, which I'm actually hopeful for, for better or worse, because all of science, in a sense, is on display, the good and the bad, um, that, that this will really help to illuminate some of those areas of practice that we can improve. So this is a classic one. Why on earth is all data really, where possible, not made freely available. Um, yeah, yeah. There is certain... I mean, it, 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 I mean, under normal circumstances, you know, I'm all for reproducible science, but, you know, you can understand people have commercial interests and so on, but mm. when we're in a global pandemic or, or with, with any infectious disease, really, you've got to think, come on, guys, especially if you're going to be claiming that this is the cure, or it's a effective treatment. 
Yeah, so I mean, reviewer it, two failed us to fail this paper. Reviewer two did fail us. I mean, this is where also questions are asked. <laughs> of it, ironically, questions are for, asked for our non non scientist uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, listeners. Ex- explain that joke. <laughs> yes. Um, so, um, non scientist listeners hopefully know that we have this process known as peer review, which is where you send your paper um, out, um, and it, it usually gets. Um, read by let's say three peers um, and they conduct a peer review and there's a joke within the scientific community that reviewer two is always a fiercely critical reviewer <laughs> reviewer two is the one who 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 makes you cry to sleep at night because they're the one who, yeah. who who really lays into your research expose your terrible methodology <laughs> yes i was going to say it's the one that voices your insecurities that's yes. reviewer two yes so reviewer two is the one who says you know, the, the, this this team clearly have no idea what they're doing. This Peter Tennant um, seems to be making it up as he goes along. Um, I mean, so, so that's the joke within the community. Um, and, and it's true that we all get reviewer to like comments from time to time where you just think, good Lord, this is just, this is just nasty rather than necessarily scientifically um, useful. But, but at the same time, having a culture where it's okay to a certain degree to really tear into someone else's science as long as that's what you're doing is good it's very very healthy for us to criticize each other's science as long as it's delivered uh, in in a respectful manner and i think the reviewer two joke is that often it isn't it seems personal rather than scientific but this is where we've had a really interesting um kind of reckoning for the scientific process. Because at the one hand, we've seen peer-reviewed papers get through the peer-review process, um, in a sense, without these big flaws being detected, with, you know, immortal time bias not being detected, um, or, or potential fabricated data not being protected. I mean, at the very least, very strong questions should have been asked um, of, of that, that data. Um, but then at the same time, we're also in a new phase of science where we're publishing in two stages. So we, we are now increasingly encouraged to publish what's known as a preprint um, first in order to, in a sense, accelerate the scientific process. Um, I've done my research. Let's get it out there straight away before peer review so that people can collectively peer review it. Um, and then the peer reviewed version comes later. Um, but some of these have been absolutely dire, <laughs> I mean, and 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 have then been really, um, thankfully, torn apart um, online. But does but that not... come down to quantity over quality? You've got lots of people piling in, saying, "Well, this is a crisis. We better do some effort towards it, even if we're not necessarily the best place people to do it." Yes, we're scientists, I think so. We should release a preprint. I think it. The, 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 I think it's the best I would say is it's everyone is trying to help. You know, this is the positive interpretation. Yeah. Everyone is trying to help. Everyone is trying to do that quickly because the pandemic is quick. You know, I have to be honest, this is another reason I find it very difficult to do COVID-19 research. Um, I like to take thing. my time and get things right. It's hard. Uh, genuine. The data science is hard. Non-experimental data science, as I've described, is extremely tricky. Um, so I, I get very anxious when 
in a sense, there isn't the opportunity to build in all of my own checks and balances. You know, yeah, um, yeah. we often do a lot of internal, you might call it peer review, um, but but there's a, there's a there's a lot of checking every every decision we've made and double checking everything we do, and maybe those processes are being uh, bypassed because there's an urgency to just get the research out. Combined with the fact that you've got people who are less familiar with these type of questions and this type of data jumping in, um, so it's you know it, it's it's a it's a really interesting time yeah. to be a scientist. I, I'd be tempted to say like one advantage would be that obviously yeah because there is a time pressure, but the fact that so many people are releasing research that although some of it isn't going to be up to scratch some of it will be and just by virtue of more of it happening that there's more likely that we will get the right kind of discoveries whether whether that be drug treatments or 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 vaccines or or whatever else it is or or you know if it's something more basic like understanding risk factors better Um, but i suppose then the problem you have is even if that good quality research is out there is is getting lost in the (laughs) In the rest of it, <laughs> I think this is the this is the big debate that is almost ongoing, and we won't know the answer until it's potentially too you know irrelevant. But um, will we see science doing what it's meant to do? Um, and actually, for the outside world watching, it's a little bit scary. This is make, this is like watching sausages being made. What it's meant to do is you're meant to get all all kinds of stuff being. Th- flung out by lots of different teams that are different and then collectively it kind of corrects itself and goes well those studies are weak these ones are strong and look and and the experts looking across all of the evidence draw together the you know the 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 knowledge and we move forward but seeing that process can be quite scary because it it looks an awful lot less um uh, erudite than you might imagine um but as you just pointed out if if the signal to noise ratio is is um, not so favorable, if you're actually just getting huge amounts of noise and not very much signal, then you're in great trouble. Um, there's a real risk actually that, that the science won't be able to self-correct because there's, there's it can't find the truth from um, you know from from all of the. Uh, the the rest, mm. all of the sludge, in a sense. So it's there's, there's been no test run for this, really. Um, this has never happened before. In not previous... at this speed. Not at this speed, and not on this scale. I mean, it's it's true to say that when you actually look at the scientific system, um, it, there is a huge amount produced. Um, yeah. The vast majority of which is noise, and that's oh, you could say that's okay. I mean, it's not ideal. I would say. If we all aimed to do, I would genuinely say, if we all aimed to do a quarter of what we actually did and try to do it as better, then this would not be a bad thing. Um, but, mm. but I, I have uh, well, you mentioned before one of the sort of silly results you found, or you, you were talking about a particular vaccine which people the B- thought, yeah, the BCG, the tuberculosis vaccine. It's a tuberculosis vaccine, right? Um, so, but of course, yeah, people hadn't controlled for the many possible confounding variables there. The silliest study I've seen, and I have to say I've not seen the paper or anything like that. I've just seen someone tweeting an article about the paper, mm-hmm. but still 
someone tweeted um oh so the article said um uh male pattern boldness may be oh, a yeah. risk factor in uh COVID-19 and someone jokingly tweeted it saying haha but they didn't control for age like a joke like obviously they controlled for, for age that would be the most obvious thing and then and then the follow-up was um oh my god they actually didn't control for age <laughs> yes which is baffling i mean <laughs> um it's very again that would have been an epidemiologist making that joke Probably because yeah, yeah. it's so obvious that you would make certain control adjustments. But at, at this um, stage, it's pretty obvious to the public. I mean, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, well, that's where it really gets worrying is when the public are able to read these things at a higher level than the scientists who are involved. Um, and uh, you start to wonder what was going on there. Um, what is the use of being able to say that someone who is bald? Um, has a higher risk of COVID-19 when the reason for that is because on, on average they're more likely to be older. Um, <laughs> it, it doesn't seem very useful to me. Um, I, um, I did try and read what, the paper um, and, and it was talking about how... Oh, you've it, actually come across it, right. Yes, uh, and it talked about how baldness could be a sign. You know, the, the, there's a long history of, of trying to find what known as, uh, uh, these things known as signs. One of my favourites is something called Frank's sign, which is um, otherwise known as um, earlobe creases. Um, if you have a cr diagonal crease down one ear or two ears is even worse. Um, it is a sign that you are at a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. It, it doesn't tell you anything mechanistically in the same way the fact that someone is bald and therefore has a higher risk of COVID-19 for reasons we understand mechanistically are related probably to their age, um, doesn't stop it potentially, mm. um, with a less silly example, being a useful signal as a first, you know, if, 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 if you knew nothing else and someone walked through the door with COVID-19 <laughs> and they were bald, then you might say, oh, goodness, um, this sign... Is useful to us to know we need to keep an extra eye but on. Yeah, it. so it's a bit like saying um, people with wrinkles are more likely to die of COVID nineteen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, this could come out. I would put money on this. And they are as a research um, study. I... Wrinkles, <laughs> high risk of COVID nineteen um, severity. I do want to to leave for the record to our listeners that neither Ed or I touched our ears when when Peter mentioned it, but I did think about it. I was like, what? What is the higher risk? I didn't do it. I didn't check. <laughs> the bilateral earlobe um, crease is an example that I use of the difference between prediction and causal inference. And baldness is another good example um, in that we, and, and it actually relates to the whole concept of risk factor research. These things are potentially useful as indicators of somebody's risk, but they may tell us nothing whatsoever about what's actually going on. And certainly the real extreme example, if you're bald, I can't transplant hair into your head and know that that makes your prognosis better. You know, or if I have these bilateral earlobe creases, I can't snip off the end of my ear or I can't fill them in with collagen and know that this means I have a lower risk of cardiovascular disease. We have to actually ask a very different type of question and think about the data in a very different way. I mean, the, the other one, and this is, you know, this is a, a tough one to mention, but it, we should mention it, um, is the Open Safely research by the Oxford group, 
um, which is one of the big studies of risk factors of COVID-19. Um, and it's probably the go-to um, piece of work at the moment to um, identify um, what, what, what we might call markers um, of somebody's risk of COVID-19. But risk factor research is, um, is an area where causal inference has really, uh, shall I say, created a much more negative view of it in general. Um, because it's, it, the argument is that if you're interested in prediction, so if we're interested in predicting somebody's prognosis, then the individual elements, elements that we use to predict that um, are actually not, um, they shouldn't actually be interpreted. Um, because of the way they add together, take baldness and age. Um, say in your data set, the only thing you had was baldness, then you might say, well, baldness is a risk factor. But you've just said it's meaningless because it's actually just age. Well, that's true of every single variable we could conceive. So I could say, hmm, education seems to be linked to COVID-19. But then I realized that when I adjust for, you know, material deprivation at birth, education disappears. So as a risk factor, it is dependent on what we have observed and what we haven't observed. So in a sense, it's almost arbitrary. So what you actually do is you build a model from all the information you have, and then you just you, you evaluate the quality of that model for predicting the future. But interpreting individual elements of that is, is very, very um, contentious. And in that particular study, for reasons that get even more complicated, they showed that smoking... Um, had an inverse association with um, COVID-19 severity. So smokers appeared to fare better. Right now, thankfully, really everyone... Is... I'm really interested to see what you're going to say about this because I've heard you talk about the birth weight paradox before and I'm wondering if it's going to be the same answer. It is exactly the same problem, but it's where yeah. we're now moving into the, the hearty meat of causal inference and where it does actually start to get quite <laughs> head-hurting. Um, but um, what you, you, you have um, with the smoking situation at best um, is that message that you shouldn't really be interpreting individual elements of this model, right? And so when you do see this inverse association, um, I would say because of the way the modeling is done, um, it actually doesn't really mean anything um, <laughs> um, because it is dependent upon everything else in there. And so what you end up left over can often be very confusing indeed. And what actually happens is you end up with what are known as, and I, there isn't really a better word for this, but a conditional dependency. Um, so these are things that, for, that we do not learn in school. We learn about what's known as a, a, de, a, a dependency. So in epidemiology and perhaps slightly in the wider world, people are familiar with the concept of confounding bias. And confounding bias is where you have a relationship between two concepts or variables because they are both caused by something else. So one of my favorite examples of confounding bias is um, ice cream consumption and shark attacks. Um, so on a, um, on a, you will see in general, um, let, you'd have to go to Australia or somewhere where shark attacks actually really happen. Um, but you would see a correlation between the number of shark attacks 
um, and the amount of ice cream being consumed. And the reason for this is that both of them are caused by the weather. Um, so there's this preceding reason that people eat more um, ice cream. It's nice and sunny, but they also go swimming and sharks come into shallow, shallower waters. Right. So this confounding bias, this is what age is another common, very, very almost, I would say, almost a universal confounder. You should almost always be asking, yes, but to what extent could age explain some of this? So clearly we could, the example we've just used, wrinkles and COVID-19. Well, wrinkles are caused by age. COVID-19 severity is related to age. So wrinkles would be confounded by age. That is, that is the easier one to understand. The harder one to understand, the one that creates a lot of these things that have been termed paradoxes, um, and is where the challenge really comes in with the data generating process and where have these data come from, is conditional dependencies, which is not where something causes both of them, but where two variables, let's say, this is a simplified example, cause something else downstream of which you only have an incomplete picture of. Okay, now, I find this very hard to teach. It is one of the hardest things to teach. Um, so the example I've come up with is not perfect, but let's, let's give it a try. I call it the, the sunglasses revelation. Okay, um, and this, the same issue, for those who are familiar, explains what's known as the Monty Hall problem. Um, but the sunglasses revelation is about realizing that when we condition on downstream things, we can create spurious correlations between things that cause them. So suppose we have a world where, um, you know, people wear sunglasses for two reasons. Um, one of them um, is that it's a sunny day and they're outside, which seems like a perfectly reasonable reason. Um, and then for amusement purposes, I say another reason is that they're really hungover. I mean, there's obviously plenty of other reasons they could wear sunglasses, but let's pretend these are just two competing reasons why you might wear sunglasses. And both of these, um, in a sense, if you see somebody wearing sunglasses, then we have conditioned downstream on their state of whether they are wearing sunglasses or not. Right, so both of these are reasons why they might be wearing sunglasses. It might be because it's of the weather or it might be because they're hungover. But if you see someone walk in the door and they are wearing sunglasses and it's cloudy outside, you're, you're both nodding. This is on Zoom. This is <laughs> so I can see they're both nodding because your brain is immediately doing something. It's immediately realizing that there's a conditional it's relationship. It's making yeah, it's, it's, it's realizing that we have created a dependency because we fixed this consequence. So another example that's often used, which is or I use in my teaching now, is um, if you were to, to look at a very selective university, uh, let's say, um, uh, I don't know, a particular, let's imagine there's a particular college in Cambridge that only that runs a test um, that's extremely difficult. Um, and um, you can only really get into this um, college um, if you 
work extremely hard and do loads and loads of revision, or you're naturally brilliant, or both. But these two things can add up to be enough for you to pass that test, right? But you can imagine that means that some people who are just naturally brilliant, but don't work very hard, might be above this threshold, and they might get in. And there'll be some people who, who aren't so naturally brilliant, and they have to work very, very hard. So if we then were to look only in people in that college, you would literally see a massive inverse relationship between their natural ability and how hard they work. Um, because we've selected them into that setting on these competing criteria. And so this is, what, this is where all of the challenge comes with observational data, is why, how have people got to this setting? You know, and, and if there are competing reasons for them to get there, then those can end up inverting um, the, the apparent relationship. So you can imagine being really bright and working hard in that really selective college appear to be inverse. And in the same way, what will happen with smoking is it looks so like... Just to, just, to, just to finish up that, that example, so when you look at the people who got into the college yep. uh, only, yep. you would then think that being smart is linked to not working hard. That's right. Uh, whereas in the general population, that's not the case because you've not had that selective That's effect. right. So you would end up with... And, and it, this is the, one of the most dangerous biases one of the most underappreciated biases, we call it selection bias, yeah. or we call it how collider it bias. The, how does it work with smoking in uh, the Oxford study then? Right. Well, that one, we don't even know. But let's try the birth weight paradox. Okay. So this is, this is <laughs> 40 years. This confused everyone. Okay. And I'll try again. I'll try and simplify. I mean, explaining this without visual aids is hard. Trust me. Um, <laughs> Because, because actually, again, this is where causal diagrams, which is what we use really in causal inference, make these things a lot simpler. If your head hurts, um, that's normal, um, <laughs> because it actually doesn't fit with our intuition very well. It, it requires a huge amount of heavy lifting to understand it intuitively, whereas when you draw a causal diagram, it's much easier to understand. So um, the birth weight paradox is a, is a situation where we... We believe that smoking increases the risk of um, infant death. We also believe that um, a low birth weight increases the risk of infant death. And we know pretty strongly that smoking leads to a lower birth weight. Okay. So what happens when we look only um, in low birth weight babies? Do we see that smoking is still um, associated with low, uh, uh, a higher risk of, of infant death or not? Well, curiously, if we only look in lower birth weight babies, we see that smoking appears protective of infant death. And for 40 years, I kid you not, this caused huge head scratching and confusion because smoking is bad, right? We look in babies who are at a higher risk of infant death anyway, we'd still expect smoking to be bad. What we actually see is it really is the opposite direction. It's massively protective. And that just doesn't make sense. And so the solution for a lot of people was just don't do this type of research. Don't ever break down um, by birth weight was one of the advice, you know, <laughs> because you get funny results. 
Um, but what was actually happening was, was probably the same thing that's going on in the Oxford data, um, is that once we have fixed low birth weight, um, then we have created a conditional dependency between all causes of low birth weight. So one of those causes is smoking, right? Another cause might be a birth defect. Now, that's actually a much, much more dangerous thing than your mother having smoked. And so what it turns out is that when you say, in children who are low birth weight, what is the effect of smoking? You're really asking, in children who are low birth weight, um, what is the effect of smoking versus the other reasons why they could have a low birth weight? And smoking is relatively a much better thing to have than the other reasons. So that's what you end up seeing downstream. So again, in this study, I can't even speculate. So in, in other words, I'd, I'd say that the reason that the, the low birth weight babies with smoker mothers are low birth weight is probably because uh, the mothers were smokers and yes. not because of some other reason. Precisely. And it's all of the others in that group of low birth weight babies are there for some other reason. And so, so what it's, the so ones what that it's are smoking are not as unhealthy. Yes, so what it's actually marking is that they're low birth weight for the best possible reason, <laughs> in a sense, rather than all these other much more dangerous reasons. Um, and again, this, this is where you get these peculiar inverse effects happening. This is what we call collider bias um, for technical reasons to do with the, the, the low birth weight we would call a collider in causal inference language because the causes of it are colliding at that, at that point. And because we've not got full information about it, it creates these weird statistical associations and these really weird effects. And they're much more head-hurting than what we call it, confound. It does seem a little bit different in the COVID-19 example, just because I'm thinking amongst the people they were probably had in their data set, all of them would have had COVID-19, right? Uh, and so the ones that had smoking or didn't, it's not like we're talking about something like birth weight, which is separate mm. from the disease. This is, where it gets, is disease. this is where it gets even messier, because when we do statistical analyses, you'll often hear scientists will say, we've controlled for blah, 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 blah. Yeah. We've adjusted for, we've included these in our model, whatever the terminology is. Um, and, and of course, you know, usually that might be age um, and socioeconomic background. But in a, in a prediction model, we simultaneously control for everything. Um, but actually, when we control for a variable in a model, we are doing the same thing as um, <laughs> looking in subgroups. It's a little bit difficult to explain. Um, but um, essentially, the model is analyzing the, um, the apparent relationship in every little subgroup that you have controlled over, okay? Now, that means anything that is downstream of smoking could be a collider. And in reality, every one of these prediction models, I would hypothesize that all but one variable will have at least one collider which has been controlled for. 
And so that means that you will start to get exactly these kind of very peculiar inverse associations happening. And therefore, you know, in the nicest possible way, I would just say, try not to interpret these. Um, that's what, if you do want to interpret them, you no, need it's very interesting as well. a causal yeah. inference approach. I, I'm hoping to um, get Ben get Goldacre on the podcast at some point to talk about, <laughs> if, if we can get him, uh, the results from the Oxford group. Um, you can challenge yeah. him on, on Collider Bias. <laughs> Oh, I was going to say, if, if any of our listeners know Ben, just, just go and poke him to come to the podcast. Yeah, I'm sure Tag he'd be very happy to. I mean, again, I should say, um, I'm speaking from this position of um, privilege in the sense that I have come to learn these phenomenon and these problems. If your head is hurting, it's because it's, very, it's taken a very long time for people to really get their heads around. And only with these new methods, these causal inference methods, causal diagrams, that they become easier. And the reality is in the UK, um, it's quite new. And so I feel very lucky that I understand these things. Um, ben, I'm sure, may or may not be familiar with them. Um, but a lot of the UK in general is less so. So this is where these kinds of problems. Are you talking are, about the scientific community as well as the public? Or? I, I, I was talking exclusively about the scientific community. I wouldn't really oh, right, expect right. the public to <laughs> have heard of Collider Bias unless they have read um, the book of Why and amazingly managed to understand <laughs> some of it. <laughs> um, All right, um, Peter, I think um conscious of time now, but thanks for a, a sort of whirlwind tour of everything you think is going on with COVID-19. I, I think it's been really interesting and informative. Um, I think uh, we'll finish up with a silly question. I've got a silly bonus question that is completely unrelated to um, everything we've talked about so far. Um, But I think it's something we're going to start doing with podcast guests from now on. Drop in a a random bonus question. Um, So so here it is. Um, If the technology from the Jurassic Park films turned out to work in real life, should we do it? Should we bring back the T-Rex, in your opinion? <laughs> <laughs> the, oh, I love this question, because that line from, uh, what's his name, Malcolm, Professor Malcolm, I think of him as, where he says, you know, people have been so busy answering Richard whether or not we could, they have not stopped to ask whether or not we should. Um, and I think so much of that is relevant to AI research. You know, it's all very well racing to build the next super brain but should we be doing that um should we make a new t-rex hmm i mean the kid in me who loves dinosaurs of course thinks that would be a great idea um but um clearly i'm not actually sure what the benefits would be for humanity Um, I, i was just thinking the anxiety would go up if suddenly there's a gigantic predator that wants to eat us yeah. that would be <laughs> yeah a bit scary so it's sort of like <laughs> the, the 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 geek in me and this is the problem the geek in me thinks oh that's cool let's do that and then actually practically i think how could that ever actually be useful and then the dangers are just so high i'd probably be one of those boring people who'd say no I see, yeah no, maybe we. I'd say we can we can play around with T Rex embryos, where they're not allowed to be born or something like that. Um, but that's fudging oh, the controversial. question. Controversial. <laughs> Interesting. Yes, yeah. Just, yeah. Good question. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I, I just I just quickly googled and and the quote you mentioned because it, it it was um, uh, Jeff Goldblum's character, not really yes, yes, I think. He, but I can't the, remember. He's the Malcolm. scientist who doesn't doesn't like it. right. Yeah, he doesn't. I can like only it. remember his yeah. name as Malcolm. Ian, Ian Malcolm. That's Ian Malcolm. Yeah. Yeah, so go. it was it was Professor Malcolm or Doctor Malcolm. Yes, yeah. you got it right. Um, yeah. Yeah. This reminds me, I need to rewatch Jurassic Park, one of my favourite <laughs> films. I was absolutely mad about this. As That's a, a solid lock, plan for this evening. Yes, that is my that is my next lockdown task. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> All right, Peter, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you both. To learn more about the work going on at the Alan Turing Institute, visit our website at turing.ac.uk. To get in touch with the podcast team, if you have any questions or suggestions, email us at podcast at turing.ac.uk. Music for this episode was provided by Jamin Sun. You can listen to his latest releases at jaminsun.bandcamp.com. The Turing Podcast is hosted by Ed Calstry, Tara Callum, Ben Walden, Effie Dennis, and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute.